guys, welcome to the Better Building Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with me are special guests Joe Panisi and Michael Tosevsky with RP Fetter, as well as Nick Taliska and Mark Sankey. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing clean room design and standard and molecular type clean rooms. So before we dive into the conversation, as always when we bring on guests, let's let Joe and Michael introduce themselves as well as RP Fetter. So with that being said, I'll uh, I'll let Joe and Mike jump in. Okay, Mike, you want to go first? Yeah, you know, thanks for thanks for having us on. Um, my name's Mike Tosevsky. I'm a sales engineer at RP Fetter, and uh, as a sales engineer, you know, my role revolves around helping business owners, engineers, and contractors create comfortable, efficient, and controlled indoor environments. Um, I've been in the HVAC industry specifically for eight years. But before that. I spent a few years in industrial filtration, and my goal as a sales engineer is to educate other engineers and organizations about specific products and provide solutions to their mechanical and clean room problems. Awesome. Thanks a lot, man. And I guess Joe will let you bring her home. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Clayton. And thank you for uh, letting us come on your program today. My name is Joe Panisi. I've been in the HVAC business for 40 years. I have a two-year associate's degree in air conditioning from Alfred State and a four-year bachelor's degree from RIT in energy engineering. I've been with RP Fetter Industrial for the past 34 years and presently the vice president of sales. RP Fetter is the manufacturer's rep and OEM manufacturer of filtration heating equipment servicing Western New York since 1959. My focus has primarily been air filtration which includes a very broad spectrum dealing in HVAC, dust collection, odor control, molecular contamination, exhaust systems, and today's topic, clean rooms. I deal in all aspects of clean room design, but my strength is in design-build projects. Industries I deal with include optics, healthcare, pharmaceuticals, semiconductors, microelectronics, research labs, and plastic injection facilities. Working with owners, architects, engineers, and contractors, I focus on one goal, educating my customers to provide the best solution for his or her application so at the end of the project, we both walk away satisfied that we achieve the best possible results. Awesome. Thank you. So we, we have the right people on, obviously, for a clean room podcast discussion. And I think it's going to be, you know, for our listeners, a really there's a lot to cover for this topic and I can see this going, you know, a lot of discussion and then we can have some follow-up episodes as well for it. So I'm really looking forward to it. I think a good starting point is just kind of set the stage for clean rooms. And if our listeners aren't familiar with them, Joe, you kind of covered, I think, you know, the, the types of owners you work with for clean rooms, it seems like about all of them, right? Every different type of manufacturing process related to a clean room or different type of clean room you kind of deal with right for the most part that's that, that's that's correct clean rooms fall into a lot of different categories but what a clean room basically is is a controlled environment where we're trying to control the airborne particles less than or greater than 0.5 micron so people who kick around class 100, class 1000, class 10,000, what does that mean? Well, what that means in simple terms is that if I walk into a clean room, I can grab one cubic foot of air. And if I measure that cubic foot of air through a particle counter, 
for class 100, I should have no more than 100.5 micron-sized particles in that cubic foot of air. So that, in, in simple terms, is how what a clean room is defined as. Um, a lot of people are going to say, well, what's a micron mean? Well, right. a micron is um, a measurement of a particle size. So if you take a look at what the human eye can see, we can see down to around 30 or 40 microns. Um, if you take table salt, that's around 40, 50 microns in size. So what we're dealing with is particles we can't even see. Joe, for a reference, what's the general uh, particle count of ambient air, outdoor air? Oh, I mean, you could uh, look up the EPA monitors that, and you could uh, you can get those EPA standards. But uh, depending on where you are, if you're out in the country or even in the city, you could be anywhere from, you know, 100, 200,000 particles, 0.5. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it, the, the outside air is very contaminated. Not so much here in Rochester, but if you get into the big cities, um, it, it, it is very contaminated uh, with uh, pollutants and uh, car exhaust and all kinds of different things. What about, to, to add on to that question, that was a good question, Mark. What about just like, you know, your house? And that probably varies a lot as well, but... Well, in your house, you've got uh, different contaminants. You've got your people, you've got mm -hmm. your pets, um, you got doors opening and closing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, in your house, it's a little bit more controlled, but you still have uh, large counts that could be into the, you know... You know, fifty to a hundred thousand particle size of point five and larger. That's why it's always a good practice. People, you know, ask me about this, and I say, well, the biggest, the biggest uh, benefit is to turn your fan on and run it continuously, so your filter is always filtering the air. Oh yeah, that's a great point. Yep. Yeah, and 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 I always tell people if you have a fiberglass filter in your your uh, furnace, uh, replace it immediately because it's doing nothing for you. You have to have a minimum, a minimum of a pleated filter, okay? And then from there you go up. Right. right. What, are you trying to put Lowe's out of business? What are, what are you doing there, Joe? <laughs> so, point. so yeah. So for the clean rooms, you know, that's I think a good comparison. For if you're not familiar with them to understand, like a class 100 clean room is, I get you still can get cleaner, right? You can get like class 10 and what oh, yeah. have you. Yeah, class but, one. I mean, class, class 100 yeah. is is a very, very clean space, and you're wearing the whole bunny suit, get up, face mask, everything's covered for the most right. part, right? Because your skin sheds particles. Exactly. Exactly. A good indication if you're in a class 100 room is you should be able to look in the ceiling and see 100% coverage of HEPA filters. That means that you are in a class 100 area. Um, and we keep on using class 100, class 10,000. That is actually the old federal 209D standard. We no longer use that and now it's all based on ISO mm -hmm. um, and the ISO standard 14644-1. Uh, has replaced that old federal standard and uh, basically same parameters, but it's a little bit tighter. So, uh, Joe, for the folks that aren't uh, in the business, tell us what, what a HEPA filter is, what that means, and what it does. Okay, a HEPA filter. Okay, a HEPA filter is 
obviously everyone knows what an air filter is. Okay, and every air filter has a um, MERV rating, which tells you what particles it could pull out of the air. Okay, so if you look at a standard pleated filter, that has a MERV rating of 8. So if you take a 10 micron size particle, which is a boulder inside of a clean room, it's going to take about uh, 75 to 90% of that out. Well, when you get into HEPA filtration, you're now dealing with a filter that's going to filter down to 0.3 micron size and is factory tested to be 99.97. So that means that 0.03% of 0.3 micron is getting through that filter. So now that filter could also go up to 99.99 and also 99.59s, uh, which is a ALPA filter. So all those are the different standards and the different ways when you ensure that your clean room is clean, you obviously got to make sure your filter is tested. And those are typically tested at the manufacturer's facility and it's labeled with an ISO standard to test it to that 0.3 micron size. And it's delivered in that fashion. Great, perfect. Yeah, Thank I you. mean, that's just an impressive amount of filtration to yeah. to consider. You know, I think it in the industry we, we work in, that's the norm and you get used to it. But when you really think about it, that's a lot of filtration. And then kind of to add to that discussion of filtration, I got two things. So when you're in a clean room, Right, and you have your bunny suits on, and, and your work. There's workers in a clean room working on a process, and there's equipment. What, like, once you're you're clean per se, right? Equipment gets cleaned off and brought in there, and people are wearing suits and brought in there. Where do the particles come from then? I mean, people are just constantly shedding particles, right? And equipment. I w I was going to ask about the bunny suit thing because some people may not even know what that is. Well, let's first talk about our sources of contamination because that will lead into the bunny suit. So there are really three potential sources for contamination. The first one is outside air. Okay, so you're always bringing in outside air into the clean room. So that's got to go through its cleaning process, 30%, 95% through a HEPA and then in, into the space. That's got to be properly filtered. So that's one source of potential contamination. The other is the process itself. The process may be developing some type of particulate that could potentially contaminate the room, and that obviously could be remedied through an exhaust system or through a recirculation system that would capture that. But the, by far the biggest source of contamination are people mm -hmm. when they walk into the room because even when you're sitting at rest or in motion, you're generating thousands and thousands of particulate off of your body via skin and hair. So all of this is contamination inside of the room. What you do is, and we'll get back to the bunny suit, is you, you before you walk into a clean room, you have what's called an anteroom. Now the anteroom is a space that one, segregates the clean room from the outside so you can maintain positive pressure, but two, it gives the people a space to change out of their street clothes and get into a bunny suit. Okay, what's a bunny suit? Well, in a clean room, 
since you are shedding all these particles off your body, you have to gown up. So what that means is, is that like for a class 100,000 or a class 10,000, you would simply put a hairnet to control your hair. If you have a beard, you put a beard net on, you put a smock on, and you would put booties. Okay. If you could think of when you're walking around, you're generating, you're picking up uh, your shoes, a lot, a lot of contamination. So we want to capture all that and make sure that doesn't get into the room. So you put on booties. So that is the bare bones minimum that you would have in a clean room. Now, when you get into a class 1000, class 100, you get into a full bunny suit. That means you are completely covered from head to toe in a full body suit, your, your neck, face, Everything is covered, and all you have is a set of goggles that you're looking out of that to see. But you're wearing gloves. You're completely gowned up, so there is no exposed body parts, surface, clothing that's exposed to the clean room, and that's all contained inside of this bunny suit. And the material of construction of the bunny suit is of, of something that doesn't shed particles and right. contains <laughs> particles inside it. Yeah, right. It's a it's a non-shedding material that High that uh, kind of stuff. And, and a lot of them are disposable, but there are laundry services that actually laundry those uh, suits in a clean room, and they are folded and and repackaged and sent back. Um, but yeah, that's uh, they're all non it's all non-shedding particles. Correct. Yep. Yep. Amazing. It is. It really is. So we covered, you know, what makes particles, the different types of classes of clean rooms and, and how clean those classes really are, right? Um, and then different types of filters. Can, I'm sorry, can I ask, how many classes are there of clean rooms? I assume, you know, these are all the ISO classifications, right? Right. The ISO goes from class, from from ISO 1 all the way up to ISO 9. So... For example, ISO 7 was your old class 10,000 standard. Right. What's 1? One? 1 1 is very 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 clean. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, I mean. Uh so you're 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 getting, you know, I mean, it's it's Cuz a 5 is class 100, right? Don't yes. I, so yeah, I mean, that's just inconceivably clean to go cleaner okay, so than that one me. is the most stringent nine yeah. the least stringent and these yes. old terms like when i hear people say class 100 those are older terms but that 100 also refers to the uh, particle size or something right right you particle can the, the old term was is that you could not get less you have to have less than 100.5 particles in the every cubic foot of air yes okay yeah and how and how they do that is they there's machines particle counters, okay that measure this. What they do is they bring in one cubic foot of air across a lens and they scan it with a laser and they measure all these particles to determine what that is. So in a clean room, what you would do is you would have several locations that you would test to verify that your room is in compliance and. Um, some people do it at the beginning of a of a startup on a clean room and then have to recertify every six months to a year to sure. ensure their customers are their product is being you know manufactured in a clean environment and they have to give that to their customer to certify production or 
if you're in a pharmaceutical, the FDA, or whoever the governing body is. Okay, so so no uh, immediate in situ type of testing for particle sizes? You have to take a sample, get to a lab? No, no, the laser particle counter is a machine you put right in the space, and you you roll it around, and it measures it right there in the spot. Oh, fascinating. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, and I think they kind of do it. You could do up, you know, the whole cubic foot, right? But you could also do like samples and extrapolate and what have you. So it speeds up the process. You can get a pretty quick understanding of where you are at that instant for particle count. But not a constant measurement thing like maybe CO2 would be. Um, That's a good question. You can can get systems that um, will do multiple locations. And what you would do is you would have a string of tubing. Sample tubing. Sample tubing, yes, that would go back to kind of a, I want to call it like a, a round gauntlet that, that cycles through and you would sample every 30 seconds or every minute. Yes, you can do that. In critical spaces, they prob- they, they do do that. But you're talking about a class one or class 10 environment. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that is possible. That is possible. Interesting. For airflow, you know, we, we talk about, and you say you look up, and if it's a class 100, you're going to see a full HEPA density, right? And class 10,000 will be whatever, 50% or 30% HEPA. So the typical airflow for a clean room is your HEPA filter pulls air from above it in an in a interstitial or plenum so space. You're right? talking about a FFU. So yes, yes. Let's talk about FFUs for a minute. Yeah, I guess typically uh, in in clean rooms, there's two types of HEPA filtration designs. Um, one being HEPA filters that are ducted to the space, and they're installed in the air handling unit mm-hmm. or the ceiling. And the other is uh, the use of HEPA fan filter unit. And the HEPA fan filter unit just provides a filtration and recirculation of the air to the clean room. And their design's pretty simple. It's not much more than a HEPA filter attached to a centrifugal blower in a housing. And then that housing fits inside a standard two by four or four by four ceiling grid. So that pulls air from from a, above the space, right? Above the ceiling and yep, blows in a plenum. It, yeah, mm-hmm. in a plenum. Okay. And then blows it down into the, 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 the clean room, right? If it's the room or um, a, one area of it, you know, some of them are in a ballroom wide open and some have rooms dividing them so that airflow pattern it changes depending on the class of clean room right as you get cleaner you you may want more would you say laminar flow as opposed to i don't know what you would call like turbulent or whatever i mean you're either laminar or unidirectional let's we'll start with laminar because that's easy to understand right laminar flow is usually you know an iso 5 class Mm -hmm. 100 type of environment Laminar flow just means is your airflow is in a pattern that's parallel with the walls. It's called parallelism. Okay, so in a true laminar flow clean room, you would have a raised floor mm-hmm. so that your if you have 100% coverage, that air flows down in a parallel fashion down to the floor and then is returned back up into the plenum. Okay, that gets very, very expensive. Raised floors are very, very expensive. Right. So most of them are unidirectional. So that means is that 
the class 100 room would have a perimeter return around the complete perimeter. Okay, so your air would come down and for the most part you're parallel until you get to the last couple feet of the room and then you go non-laminar and you return into the return air grills. Right. So it's really you really either unidirectional or your 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 laminar. Okay. And and I assume like you said that unidirectional would probably be more common due to cost constraints and construction constraints and facility constraints with particle counts, you know, you can Yeah, do... you you usually don't I mean usually don't I mean think about it you're, you're you know raised floor is 12 inches off Right. The room's 10 feet. Yeah. You know, if you have a, a plenum above, that's another three feet. I mean, you start to grow, so you, you want to try to keep as low as possible. You might have certain height restrictions. I want to say the majority of the rooms are unidirectional, where they just have a lot of perimeter returns. Mm-hmm. You're trying to keep the – or reduce the turbulence inside the space, right, when you're when you're laying that all out in the design? Yeah, yeah. What if you could envision? Say that uh, for every airflow that comes down, you 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 had a string, okay? You took those strings and you saw how it comes down, and it's parallel with the wall till you're a couple feet off the ground, and now you're going to start to turn and go inside of your returns. Well, that area or that little tripod is a point of turbulence or potential turbulence that, if there was dust or contaminants in the room, could possibly kick up. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you try to minimize that, and you minimize that by slowing the air down and trying to get as much return around the room as possible. Makes sense to me. You don't want particles, you know, any particles shedded or, or kicked up from people, you want to get go down, out, and through, and recirculate through the HEPAs to get cleaned, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yep. All makes sense. Um, do we want to shift gears a little bit from filtration then and, and talk about some of the other aspects of the critical aspects, especially of clean rooms? Or does, is there any more questions on filtration that we want to add for our listeners or discussion points? <laughs> so, does anyone, does, do any of oh, you guys want to know where HEPA comes from? Where does yeah, HEPA that, come that's from? That's, that's interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The store, right? I mean, that's what <laughs> the HEPA, from the HEPA store. Yeah, it's just magically made from the, yeah. the HEPA fairy. Yeah, uh, Amazon. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, HEPA filter filters have been around only since 1940s. They were developed by the U.S. Army through the Manhattan Project. Scientists, wow. scientists realized that the radioactive particles used to make the atomic bomb were harmful to humans. So they needed to develop a filter that would filter out these radioactive particles. They found that 0.3 micron size was the perfect size to remove those radioactive particles. Today, HEPAs look much different than they did back in the 1940s, but the theory is still the same. We're still removing 0.3 micron size particles, whether it's 99.97 or 99.999995, it's still the same theory that it was back in the 1940s. Hmm. I knew it was going to be a good story. Yeah. Complete sidebar, but I found it interesting. It was doing a little research. You know, when we had all that smoke from the wildfires and the, the to me, yeah. this is a good visualization, right? Um, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. I just got information from the internet. But, you know, the, the, the smoke haze, a HEPA filter does a pretty good job of cleaning, cleaning the air even from smoke, right? Like smoke particulates. 
are around that size, 0. 0.3. Well, the, or... Yeah, not 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 to go off into into tangents here, but if you take a look at smoke, yeah, smoke is generally around that 0. 0.3 yeah. size, okay? But smoke you smell and yes. you see, okay? If you can smell something, it is a particulate, okay? This I drive my wife crazy because she wants all these perfumes and stuff in the house. I says, well, if you smell it, it's a particulate and you're huh. breathing it in. Yeah. So um, those, the smoke that you see, yes, can be taken out with a HEPA filter because it is in that 0.3 size and can do a very effective job of it. The problem is people can't put HEPA filters on their homes and in businesses right. because of the pressure drop of a HEPA filter. Yep. Um, but uh, but you are correct. It is a, a good way of removing smoke uh, from an airstream. That was just my like aha moment. Like that's a good comparison for to understand what size particulate we're talking about. You know, it's Joe. Could you repeat that? You said if you can smell it, and then does that mean it's a certain size particulate? Yep, yep. You just can't see it, but if you can smell it, it's a it's it's. It's a it's a particle size that uh, that's a particle size. Okay, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. interesting. Kind of disturbing now that I think about it. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you're out out in the out in the countryside and you're driving along and oh, you yeah, see a yeah. farmer spreading cow manure and you smell it, that's a particulate that you're breathing in. You know, granted the 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 dosage is there, but the concentration is very, 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 very minor. So a lot of your nostrils and stuff, and your nose will will fil filter that out. But yeah, it is a particulate. Yeah, I come, I'm okay with that, but not smelling somebody else's gas in a closed environment. <laughs> I don't know. I just like nature, I guess. <laughs> nature, well, yeah. You know that. That's why I get very upset when I see young people smoking or or vaping because, geez, you're just taking those particulates and throwing it in your lungs. It's very, very detrimental. Yeah. Directly. Yes. yes. No dilution. Yeah. Do you mean to tell me the little filters on the end of those don't uh, <laughs> do anything? Come on. Are doing nothing. <laughs> well, so uh, I'm, I'm going to ask another question then. So based on that, okay, and what was the, uh, what was the size of the COVID virus approximately? I think it was like 0.03 microns. It's pretty small. Yeah, the when COVID came out, did a lot of research into this, and yeah, the the COVID micron, the the actual virus itself was was yep. yes was sub micron. It was down below 0.1. Uh, so, but but the mask mandate was basically based on its attachment to uh, water vapor that we exhaled or inhaled. Correct. Correct. The, Correct. The, the COVID yeah. virus will only live, I believe, 24 hours. It has to be on a host, a water vapor to survive. And the theory was is that when you exhale, if you have the virus on your, uh, your uh, exhale, Okay, that you you know when you if you're on a cold day and you breathe and you right. see that condenses. Okay, yeah. you have that all the time. Right. Okay. So when you have those coming out, the mask was to try to help contain that. Um, I don't know how good of a job it did because uh, the the N95 masks were only 95 
percent. I had to, you know, I think is and uh, can't remember what micron size, but people have asked me, does a HEPA filter catch the virus? And the answer is the raw virus. No, no. But if the virus is attached to a water molecule, which it should be to survive, uh, then the answer is yes. Right. That could be its own podcast series. Right? I mean, <laughs> I know. I, I just wanted to throw it out there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, I'm glad you did. That might have to be the one of the other ones in our filtration series then, huh? Worthwhile. So I think we did a good job covering filtration then to that point. And, you know, being the clean room design podcast, I, I think we should talk a little bit about the other critical aspects of a clean room, which is, well, depending on the process and the facility, temperature, humidity, and pressure, right? Yeah, th those... Those are the three main ones, you know, in some aspects, you know, there's molecular control, there's light control, but for the most part, those three are the ones that are basic in all clean rooms, temperature, humidity, and pressurization. Okay, so the first thing you have to look at is how quickly you're moving that air in the space. So, I mean, if you're in a class 100, chances are you're moving the complete volume of air of the space every 20 to 25 seconds. Mm -hmm. So when you have that kind of air exchange, what I found is it's pretty easy to maintain a good temperature humidity control because you're moving that much air. You're getting a great mix mixing of the air in the space. So that's pretty easy to do. Um, pressurization, that is just bringing in enough air outside of the clean room to pressurize the space between 0 0.02 and 0 0.06 inches of water. And what you want to do is you want to make sure that your air flows or your pressurization flows from the clean room to your anteroom and then the anteroom to the outside. Right. So you don't want any infiltration. You want all exfiltration. Right. Very few... Yes, you want. There are a few rare instances where you have to have a negative clean room, mm -hmm. and that would be in an area where there's some contamination inside, like a TB room or something like that, where you don't want those contaminants to escape. That's a little different story. But right. I want to say, for the most part, you want it to be a positively pressurized clean room. Mm -hmm. And that's where you know when you pointed out for where do contaminants come from particles for labs and you've mentioned outside air that's a it's a typically a pretty fair amount of outside air gets brought into these clean rooms to keep them positively pressurized so you're always bringing in outside air and then thus always bringing in particles so exactly you're you're you know you you figure if you're you know usually it's about from a cfm a square foot to 10 percent of your hvac air um, so you're bringing in quite a bit, okay? And you would typically have a separate unit just to condition your pressurization air. Right. And then it would go to your HVAC unit that would give you your temperature and humidity control of hmm. the space itself. All right. Well, so I, I, just a comment on the amount of outside air. So a couple of things drive that. Number one, the pressurization requirement, but number two, the prudent and judicious use of exhaust from the clean room, uh, you know, what's appropriate for the process versus a cut and paste or a, mm -hmm. uh, right. oh, we're, we'll just use this amount because exhaust air 
It's yep. cheap to run a fan, but the air that you have to bring in, condition and filter to make up for that exhaust air is very expensive. And then the third is the actual quality of construction and attention to the detail of sealing of the outside of the clean room, the, the general construction practices. Exactly. Yeah, you're trying to fill up a balloon. If you poke a bunch of holes in it, you're going to have a hard time keeping air in right. it, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. So you, your, your construction is critical and how you seal up that space to ensure that you have a tight air box, so to speak. And uh, exhaust is a good is a good point, Mark. I remember doing one room where uh, we almost we got to the to the very end of the project, and then I I see an exhaust fan being installed. I'm going, uh, what's that doing there? We didn't size that for that. <laughs> so we we didn't figure for that. So we had to scramble to try to compensate for it. But right. um, this is knowing your customer and knowing what the processes are inside, so you can ensure that you have all the bases covered, so you can react to those type of uh, road bumps. I got a question off of more pressurization. Now we started talking about temperature and um, for, you know how Joe, you mentioned you want air to go from say your, your clean room to your ante room out, right? When you open the door. Correct. How, what mechanism do you do for that to create the pressure difference? If I don't know, they like say the ante room, they're all coupled together by a common plenum. Well, <clears throat> first off, you would have to have a wall between Yep. Okay, if you envision your plenum, uh, you would have a wall between your ante room and your clean room. Okay, so that would be its own little environment. And you, in a clean room, dampers are your friend. Right. Everything has to be dampered, return air supply. Everything has dampers because you want to be able, you don't know how well that construction is going to be. So you want to be able to have the flexibility mm -hmm. to react to changing that return and trying to you know, get to that, you know, 0 0.05 mark uh, pretty easily. So, um, so yeah, the, you, would, you would have to segregate the rooms that you're pressurizing. They have to be fully segregated from each other. Mm -hmm. Ask a question about ventilation. So I know there's probably not any typical occupancy uh, density numbers for clean rooms because they're so varied. But, you know, how, how much of the outside air load is for the ventilation of the people in the space um or is that a really very small? very small amount you'll find that you bring in a lot more air than the ashray standard for ventilation air requires you'll you'll I've, I've never seen where you're less than than the ventilation required for ashray um in pressurization air oh i would imagine with the air changes you're talking about and obviously the pressurization uh so are they noisy environments? Like is, is the air, you know, velocity or are they? Well, in a clean room, okay, you also, we talked about all the different parameters, but another parameter is what we call ceiling coverage and air velocity coming out of your HEPA filter. So like, for example, we said class 100 is 100% ceiling coverage. A typical terminal HEPA diffuser has air coming in at 90 feet per minute. Okay, so 90 feet per minute is if you put your hand up there and you're six inches away, you will not feel the air. Okay, it's very coming out very, very gently. So to answer your question, there is, as far as noise, it is pretty quiet for moving that much air. 
Um, it's quiet, but there's a, there is there is some there, white noise. There's a white that's noise wrong. that you hear sure. because you got air. But you have to remember that you also have the noise of your returns too. Right. Okay. So you try to oversize the returns as big as possible to reduce that noise. But but still, if you take a say just a simple 600 square foot clean room, and that was a uh, class 100. That's about 20,000 CFM. So imagine moving 20,000 CFM in a 600 square foot area. Um, so like you said, Mark, you will get that white noise in the background. I wouldn't say it's not obnoxious or nothing with, that could cause you any bodily harm, but um, but it's there and you, you, you but, can can notice it. But Nick, think about the think about what we're doing here. The whole 20,000 CFM is distributed amongst um, a, a multitude of two foot by four foot ceiling FFUs with small fans in them. So it's basically a, a fan wall for, you know, you look at it as a fan right. wall. The fans are all running at low volume, low horsepower, and the air, the velocity discharge from the ceiling is very low. So it's, it's quieter than, you know, you think, oh, I'm moving 20,000 CFM. I have a 10 horsepower fan or whatever. It, it's not like that at all. It's a, uh, it, it's relatively quiet. Yeah, like you said, a, a ventilation wall. Hmm. Yep. I found is you you with the second you enter the clean room, you kind of notice it, and then if you're in there for an hour, twenty minutes, half an hour, I don't know, you, you start to just block it out. You don't even hear it anymore. So exactly. at least for the ones I've been in, it's not obnoxious at all. You do notice it the second you get in, and then it kind of your mind blocks it out pretty easily. Um. So do we want to talk about some of the HVAC styles or, or clean room layouts that you typically see? Like, do you see more of a, a ballroom style clean room? Like if that's just a big one open box or are they more broken out into here's our 100 by 50 clean room and then there's rooms inside of those clean rooms typically? I don't know if there's a balance that you see more of. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say for the most part, clean rooms are more of a rectangular shape than a mm -hmm. square shape. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the reason for that is that if you envision our airflow coming down, I can stay more parallel in a re rectangular room than I can in a square room and develop less turbulence. So I try to make the rooms long and narrow as opposed to a square box. Hmm. The other thing we also try to do is um, sometimes we have clean rooms inside of clean rooms. We'll build a class 100,000, but we have a certain process that requires a class 100. We'll make a little mini environment and we'll make a little clean room inside of our clean room to achieve that process uh, goal. Is that like a... It's got its own ceiling and walls kind of mini clean room, or it's just a segmented area with more filtration. It's it's a it could be both. It could okay. be, be could be both. It could be making a um, uh, an anodized aluminum structure tunnel. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, at what place? Some one of the places where we it's injection molding. We have parts coming off the machine that go right into a clean tunnel and then that is brought into the brought into the clean room for additional process work so it could be done in many different ways but uh, obviously the cost of clean rooms is very very expensive right i mean 
a clean room could range anywhere from 200 to 1200 dollars a square foot depending on what you're doing so if i can make a class 100,000 room at uh, 200 bucks a square and then just take a small portion and make it class 100 i could save the customer a lot of money as opposed to saying well you need class 100 in the whole room well you might not necessarily need that yeah that makes sense and then it, that, i mean for that's correct and it, and it's also then you, so if you think on a bigger scale you have your ante room into the class 10,000 clean room and then the 10,000 clean room you're building a class 1000 or 100 clean room inside that uh it's it's and your your class 10,000 clean room actually becomes the ante room for the class 100 you're not you don't have any chance of infiltrating raw unconditioned air into the class 100 space exactly exactly and then you you mentioned you know expense for these clean rooms and there's obviously all the supporting equipment the fan filter units hepas uh air handling units you know and what about the general construction i think this is a good segue into just talking about the general construction you know this isn't a and i know people that know clean rooms are going to just joke or, or laugh when i say this thinking it's a joke but you know this isn't a, a two by four construction drywall room right with a typical ceiling grid Th these are purpose-built facilities with purpose you know built equipment and um I don't know something worth covering maybe for our listeners that aren't and materials because yeah, yeah and materials a, yeah the, the you know you not only have first construction but then there's maintenance which is basically cleaning and rigorous right. cleaning so right yeah the speak to that the well first let's talk about construction okay the first thing we need to know is that everything is non-shedding right uh in a smooth surface okay so if your vision inside of a clean room you don't want to have any ledges or surfaces for any dust to collect. Everything's got to be a smooth, straight construction. You want Typical, vertical vertical lines, not horizontal. Vertical lines, right. You yeah. want uh, constructions of the wall, you know, for lower classification, class 100,000, done rooms with just drywall with epoxy paint. Not my first choice, but because of cost, a lot of customers go that route. What I like to see are honeycomb panels that have a sheet of aluminum on both sides, smooth surface, and are painted with a, you know, with an ESD style paint, and that are battened to a metal stud in the wall. And uh, as far as the ceiling, there'd be again aluminum, andized aluminum track that's gasketed with a non-outgassing gasket. Mm -hmm. Tiles would be mylar tiles, or sometimes I'll use quarter-inch honeycomb panels as my tile. Hmm. Literally every piece that's exposed in there has got to be yes evaluated to those standards. Hmm. Correct. Yeah, they need smooth surfaces so they're easy to clean and everything's sealed, right? Yeah, and, and as Joe mentioned, even the materials of construction, adhesives, sealants, everything is evaluated for off-gassing, right? <laughs> Yes. everything yep yep everything that goes into that room because all of it is an integral portion so what what you know sometimes people get hung up that you know yes the hvac guys they have to make it a class 100 well that's not true it's the architect and the engineer working together because right. our walls 
our ceiling, our floor, all that system is contributing to the cleanliness of that space. So all of that has to be considered um, as part of, the, part of the overall package of making that room a class 100. That, that's a great point, Joe, and really central to this whole podcast is that it starts right at the design. The, the design engineering team and their integration with the with an understanding with the suppliers, what can be built, how it can be built. That's a great point. Okay, so how big can these clean rooms get? Like I've seen a few on a smaller side, I would imagine. But then I think of places like Intel, right? How how large a facility can be a clean room within they, reason? They, You're they, seeing like warehouse could, size. They, they could be huge, Nick. I mean, I, I mean, the, these are. I mean, some of the big ones, the Intels and people like that. These rooms are gigantic. They're huge. Uh, and the same is true for the pharmaceuticals. When you see a pharmaceutical clean room, it's you know manufacturing on a large scale, high speed, and the places are big. Exactly. That's remarkable to me to, to just get your mind around that scale of it. Like I said, it's such a, neat, a niche, uh, you know, controlled environment that I don't think a lot of people think about or are aware of. I mean, maybe some of you don't even know what a clean room is, but, you know, just doing some of my own research and seeing, you know, how important and vital they are to so many different industries and it's only seems to be increasing yeah i agree and that, that's why i thought this episode was very worthwhile to have and and you know even for me now that they're they're on my radar more there's a lot of facilities that you you could drive by your through your town and it's just a normal looking i don't know commercial building on the outside and they might have i don't a lot of clean rooms inside or what have you you know um it's not glaringly obvious for a lot of places that, oh, there's a clean room in there. And, and a, a lot of manufacturing processes depend on them for different types of industries, like we said. So I, I find it very interesting. Well, and to be honest with you, I never heard of molecular clean rooms either. And we didn't I, cover I that even yet. Holy <laughs> God. <laughs> Got that far yet. But, um, but yeah, but you're absolutely right, Clayton. Um, you'd be surprised that who has clean rooms out there and um, all those clean rooms are designed and built to have a function. And that function is to produce a product in there that is has a, a detriment to particles or right. outgassing. You know, in the semiconductor, it's, you know, the, the wafers and, you know, the, the lines of resolution are getting smaller and smaller. So obviously, if uh, you get a particle on that, uh, the wafer is gone. So you're trying to uh, protect that. So it's, you're right. There's a lot of people out there that have clean rooms, functioning clean rooms that, uh, that are required by either their customer or the product itself to be manufactured inside of a controlled environment. Yep. Yep. I was just very impressed, you know, as I got into this industry, the amount of facilities that use clean rooms for all kinds of different products that they make, right, in different industries. So it was a big takeaway for me, for sure. Good industry to be in. The uh, the one thing, Clayton, we didn't talk about, I don't want to steal your, your no. thunder. If, if We didn't really talk about systems themselves. Um, and the different kinds of systems that support a clean room. I think we should. Absolutely. 
if you think that this yeah. is a good segue into it. Yeah. Yeah. There there's there's basically two types, okay? One is direct ducted, okay, where you're ducting all that air to individual terminal HEPAs. The uh the the advantage with this is that you only have one fan. The disadvantage is you've only got one fan. Right. So um but if you can envision a class 100 room, that ductwork becomes huge. Uh, and now you've got all this ductwork going all over the place and you're trying to uh, trying to keep tabs on that. Well, <clears throat> what we like to use is what I, I've kind of coined as a primary secondary kind of a system where we have a system where we have a ceiling height of 10 feet. Mm-hmm. And then at three feet above that, we have another roof on top of that that encloses that plenum. And then inside that plenum would be fan-powered HEPAs. Each of those fan-powered HEPAs would produce 600 CFM that's being delivered to the space at 90 feet per minute. That air is then drawn down to the clean room, up through the return walls, and back to that plenum above. Now, the advantage to this is that, for one, you don't have large ductwork all over the place. Now you have an HVAC system that's sized just for your space load and delivers conditioned space air into that upper plenum. And then fan-powered HEPAs deliver that air down into the space. Because you have to remember is that your clean room is somewhere around, you know, could be up to as much as 500 air changes, but your HVAC air is only somewhere around maybe... 10 air changes. The two never meet. Right. So this allows you to make your HVAC system a little bit smaller, much smaller, and then let the fan-powered HEPAs do the bulk of the air change work inside of the clean room. Yeah. So they're, they're decoupled kind of yes. through the plenum, right? That That's where it all kind of connects, I guess, if you would say. But um, yeah. If yeah. you're using air handlers to recirculate that air and filter it, they may be huge. They take up space, a lot of weight. Oh, yeah, certainly. Yep. And then like Joe mentioned, if something goes down, that's it. Right, Whereas, yeah, lose pressurization easily, don't get the redundancy. Yep, yeah. yep. So if you drew a box of your, your clean room and you added a, a another a lid to that box, your HEPAs are circulating really fast between the, the inside space and the plenum. And then your air handling units are just circulating, I, I guess, much slower comparatively just with the plenum space. Correct. And the secret <clears throat> to making that work is that your HVAC air has got to be distributed evenly across that negative plenum. If right. you don't, you will develop hot spots and cold spots inside the clean room because uh, it's pretty common that the air when the air is released inside of that plenum it disperses but in a very small pattern okay right so so if you don't get that evenly dispersed you're going to have have some issues so because i have seen it before where a contractor will just drop it in one or two spots and just uh yeah. open it up into the plenum well then we have issues it has to be delivered uniformly across the whole negative plenum that's just done through ductwork. Yes. Yep. What about in the space, you know, in the clean room where you have higher 
concentrations of, of heat load, we'll say, right? So you got a piece of equipment that is makes a lot of heat. How do you kind of prevent or, or induce that mixing so you're not short cycling that equipment's heat in that space? Just make sure you have adequate airflow so there's good mixing right. in the I would, What I would do is I would increase the airflow and bring ductwork over to that space or that area. Right. Satisfy the need of that. Um, again, the fan-powered HEPAs will do their job, but unless it has air, conditioned air coming to it, it mm-hmm. will not be able to condition that space properly. So, Yeah, so you want uniform distribution of your uh, HVAC air in the plenum, but if there are spots that, require, that are, have higher load, you'll have more conditioned air going to those spaces to serve them, right, in Correct. general? Yeah. yeah. Is it a... Uh practice or is it just generally unacceptable that people try and use variable speed FFUs to try and accomplish some amount of temperature control for those kinds of variable loads? It's, well, I, I, it can I, be done. This is a rhetorical question. I, I think yeah. I know the answer, it, but yeah, I'm just... Yeah, it can, it can be done, Mark. And, you know, with today's technology, um, you can control all the fan-powered HEPAs to a control panel located in your anteroom, and you can play with that airflow. Um, I mean, theoretically, if you're running your clean room during the day, but the clean room is not operable at night, technically, if there's no button in there and the processes are shut down, you can cycle that air back and try to save money on airflow. Because obviously you're moving a lot of air, it's costing you money. Um, like set it, back your HEPA or your, your FFU yeah, speed? Yeah, yeah, right, right. But you got to be very careful with that because if someone walks into that room, now all right. the are off, you have to get right. back to your original. Um, the other thing we like to do is we like to go to higher performance FFUs with, e, with uh, ECM motors. This allows us to use probably about one-third the wattage of a standard unit and uh it has considerable considerable savings it's actually i've actually have done jobs where i've gotten grant money from uh from new york state because i've shown energy reduction in an ffu wow it's kind of like the led light to the fluorescent yep yep (laughs) same thing yep and that counts for energy reduction that's impressive is there a bit of a cost premium to go that route or is it of course yeah yeah (laughs) of course of course but uh the the few that i've done have showed uh you know less than a than a the two-year payback oh well then it makes sense absolutely assuming you want to pay for the upfront costs which would exactly i mean it it, it, it actually becomes a no-brainer because uh, because you actually get that money back from from uh from the state oh that's really impressive i didn't know that they they would um kind of fun doing that with FFUs going with a more energy efficient. But like I said, it's the same thing as putting an LED light in, I imagine. So if you can show the reduction in wattage, mm-hmm. um, they definitely, definitely are interested in it and they are looking for those applications. So, um, and it's a lot of FFUs too. If it's a pretty big clean room, like you said, there's oh, a lot yeah. of density up there. Yeah. 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 There's, you know, you know, easily I've you know done rooms with 100, 150 FFUs. So if you can show reduction in wattage by two thirds, that's that's huge because you have to remember these are running twenty four seven. 
Mm-hmm. So it's probably one of the biggest uh, contributors to your energy bill and all these energy plants. hogs. Yeah, yeah, they're energy hogs. So you you want to try to reduce it as much as possible. I think that could be another podcast series too. <laughs> energy conservation and clean rooms. Wow, we got two two extra podcasts coming out of this now, huh? So. <laughs> I mean, those were kind of my role, you know, as I was thinking about this, obviously filtration is a huge penalty, right, on the energy. But mm-hmm. I also thought, well, maybe this is such a low priority for clean room owners because energy of what's going on in that place. So yeah. maybe something like, you know, Joe was saying behind the scenes and putting some, you know, ECM motors in or something. But I imagine if you come to them and say, I've got a better control strategy you know, we're going to monitor your temperature or whatever. I don't know if there'd be that much of an appetite for it, but I could be wrong. But I, you know, understand the value of what goes on to the the bigger organization in these clean rooms or research facility or whatever it is. But I mean, they are energy intensive, but probably on, you know, relatively small compared to what they're doing in there. No, I would think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I mean, there's monies out there for that. Um, and you'd be surprised what you can get money for, you know, upgrading your, the HVAC filtration to something that has lower pressure drop. That could be an energy savings. Uh, there, there, are, there are different, there are different uh, avenues there to, to save money and to uh, get that reimbursement from the, from the state. Well, and that's got to be a, a huge uh, avenue to look at. Like you said, the pressure drop there. But what even about, you know, occupancy control? They don't want to do anything like that. Like you said, they keep these things 24-7, right? Correct. Okay. So, again, it has to do with, with people. Mm-hmm. People are in there. You better be at full design. People aren't in there. Well, maybe you could afford to cut back a little bit. So, it's as simple as that. Sure. No, I mean, they're, they're similar, but not exactly very different profiles to like right. data centers, right? And I know there's oh, the yeah. in there is, okay, how do we better improve airflow distribution, things like that? So we're touching everything. Clayton was kind of talking about that, but uh, yeah, different types of energy intensity and in, in those two types of special spaces. Yeah, I didn't even cover like airflow. That's a good point, Nick. You triggered a thought, um, you know, dead spots and clean rooms for airflow if there's a lot of equipment in there or stuff that gets added you know you have your original design right and your airflow layout and then obviously spaces may change and they add equipment or what have you i would also think some of that has to be known ahead of time because you don't want somebody going in there i mean it's like a regular occupied space and somebody might come in and put a bookshelf or this big conference table you know right it's going to impact the design right you you Again, working with the owner, working with the architect, you develop where these pieces of machines are in your room. Now, mm-hmm. if you're in a class 100,000 or a class 10,000, well, airflow, we'll say, is not as critical. But if you get into a class 100, class 10 clean room, airflow patterns become critical. And at that point, you need to make a determination of where parts and pieces are inside that room. Um, also, you might want to invest in some, there's actually, you know, uh, CAD modeling that you could actually model the airflow pattern and you could put your HEPA's 
and returns in certain locations to best utilize uh, laminar flow in, in the space. Hmm. Very interesting. So we're probably getting close to our, our time limit just for- Oh, I wanna know so much more. I know, um, do, do we wanna to touch molecular clean rooms? Because I don't know anything about those. If you wanna give a brief outline or do we wanna save that for another discussion? What do you guys think? I, w I would think we should probably make that a next episode. Okay. Um, molecular clean rooms really take this to another level and I think uh, also, uh, Joe's points about uh, energy rebates and uh, opportunities is, you know, worth further discussion as well. Oh, yeah. I think there's so much more to talk about. So um, before we wrap things up and I say our thank yous and everything, for the listeners, Joe and Mike, what what's the biggest takeaways from this discussion? Do you think that, you know, if somebody tuned into this podcast and they didn't know anything about clean rooms or maybe if they were uh, did a lot of design with clean rooms, what do you what do you want our listeners to take away from this discussion? Mark, uh, Mike, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, just you know, filtration airflow is critical. Uh, you know, there's a lot that goes into these spaces, mm -hmm. um, details on design, uh, materials, where you're placing equipment, airflow, and you know, it takes a lot of you know experience and the right partners to work with to you know have successful projects. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add, Joe. I I'm, I'm going to add on to Joe's point earlier about where did this exhaust fan come from? I think having the right partners is great, but it's also essential to be very open and communicative during the design process, understanding there's always things that happen during construction or changes that get made. But the more information that all parties have, the, the faster and better the design and construction can happen. You're absolutely right, Mark. That's the key to making a clean room work is to know up front before you put the shovel in the ground that you know what's going in that room, what the parameters are, and what the customer's expectation uh, for the room is, is the end result. That is probably the very, very important. Because as, as we discussed, there's several ways to skin a cat, okay? And there's several ways to, to build a clean room. What you want to get is the most cost-effective way to provide a clean room with the best end result for our customer. Because at the end of the day, if the customer is not happy, I'm not happy. So we want to make sure that that need is fulfilled. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, there's a lot of common design principles when you talk about, you know, the common plenum and probably the HVAC systems and, and HEPA filtration and fan filtering that's airflow. But it's not a, a kind of a copy paste design. You, it's very specific to the process and what they're doing inside that clean room as well. So, right, a lot of carryovers for the principles, but not the actual implementation. It's that's specific to this, the each clean room. Exactly correct. Yeah, I think this was a great episode, guys. I really enjoyed it. Hopefully, our listeners did too. I think it's a lot to digest for a, an one podcast but i think this is a good a good starting point to many more specific discussions 
So with that being said, uh, Joe and Mike, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. I think it was a really great discussion. Looking forward to more to come, uh, talking about clean rooms and expanding on the topics we covered today. Mark and Nick, thank you for joining as always. And thank you very much for our listeners for tuning in. I hope you really enjoyed the episode and we're looking forward to uh, having you back for another one. Have a great day, everybody.